This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Nick Clegg. Nick Clegg is a member of the British Parliament. Um, Nick, I, I realise when I say that, I'm not giving you much doing too much justice, because, of course, <laughs> uh, you were Deputy Prime Minister, of course, for five years until last year. You were leader of your Liberal Democrats for eight years, also until last year. How has the transition been for you since you stepped down from these positions uh, uh, last year? Well, like everything in politics, when it comes to an end, it comes to an end suddenly. I mean, that's just the nature of politics. It's a very, uh, it's a very sort of abrupt. Uh, it's a very abrupt business, um, and that has its kind of virtues and its vices. It means that it's, you know the, the change, and particularly the change of sort of just sheer daily sort of velocity of your life. Um, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, it's 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 extraordinarily kind of sudden, and that, you, know, you have to get used to that. But um, uh, I'm quite a sort of pragmatic person, and I you know I certainly don't believe in sort of moping around um, uh, and so you know quite quickly I've tried to sort of gather together a, sort of a number of projects which I'm now involved with which is very different because so there's obviously much less stress and, yeah. and all the rest of it in, in, in my work uh, and I'm much more in control of my daily life I get to see my old friends and my family and I'm much more immersed in my children's homework than before <laughs> and these are all good uh, good things but also I'm able to I'm able to, I've got the luxury now to think about and read and, and even write about things that just interest me. Okay, we're going to talk about one or two of these projects you talked about. Of course, in, in, the, in the short order, we had this small matter of the UK referendum on mm. membership of the EU. Of course, your European credentials are impeccable. Some may say almost too impeccable because, you know, you're, you're such a, a good European. Um, but um, do you intend to have some kind of role in the, in the referendum campaign? And if so, what is it? Yeah, of course I'll have a role as someone who's, you know, a prominent... Uh, advocate of Britain's continued membership of the European uh, Union. But everyone, I think, has to play their sort of different roles. Uh, the, the, the primary role that needs to be played in the, in the argument in favour of Britain staying in the European Union is, of course, has to be played by the Prime Minister. I mean, it's his referendum. He initiated it. He's setting the terms of it. Uh, and in a, in a sense, I think we're all in a... Yeah. I think everybody's in a slight sort of holding pattern, really, until the, until the argument... Uh, actually takes off properly, um, and then he will clearly be the lead protagonist on one side. Of the I'm not quite sure who's the lead protagonist on the other side, but people like me, and you know, I see Alan Johnson. Alan Johnson and I are in fact doing a we're doing a joint debate uh, against a couple of folk from the sort of other side of the argument. So you know, it'll be an interesting opportunity as well for people from different parties to share platforms, which is always. Which is always an unusual thing in uh, in British politics. Uh, it happened in the in the referendum in the early nineteen seventies, and it'll happen again. So that I think everyone plays their different parts, and obviously I will I will be particularly focusing on tr trying to kind of galvanise those people who do care about Britain's future in the European Union to to not just assume that it's going to happen by default. I mean, this is an argument that needs to be made, and doors need to be knocked on, and enthusiasm needs to be um, uh, needs to be. You know, generated, uh, yeah. and I hope to play a role in all of that. If it doesn't go by default, I am keen to ask you in your in your in your bones. I mean, how confident are you that the the yes camp, the Remain camp, will prevail? I think it's going to be, you know, I think it's going to be unpredictable and 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 possibly close. Um, but in the end, in the end, uh, I, I hope um, <clears throat> and believe that people. And you've got to remember that there's sort of two groups of people who, in a sense, <clears throat> it's a sort of foregone conclusion what they're going to do. People like me who will always vote, <coughs> like you, I suspect, who will always vote for uh, our continued membership of the European Union. A whole bunch of people who will always vote to leave. So, of course, the people who matter 
are, are arguably those people who care least about it. Yeah, the <laughs> and that's what, and that's you know that, I think that's always important to to remember on both sides of the argument. You know, those of us who get very very kind of worked up about Britain remaining part of the European Union, or those people who get very worked up about those about wanting to leave, forget that for many many people, dare I say, many normal people, mm-hmm. this just isn't that important to them. The NHS, uh, good jobs for their kids, affordable housing for their grandkids. These are the things that actually matter most. So <clears throat> I think it's terrifically important that David Cameron and uh, other people who will be leading the charge uh, reach out to those voters. Um, these are voters who are never going to be enamoured with the European Union, uh, might even be quite sceptical of, of it in many respects, quite uneasy about it, probably don't consider themselves to be well, particularly well informed about it. Yeah. But when push comes to shove, I hope that they will be persuaded that in this very insecure, footloose, fancy-free, volatile world, it just doesn't make sense to start kicking the furniture over. Um, it, it really doesn't. It, you know, we, we need friends in, 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 uh, in our own European backyard and, and simply kind of turning our back on our, on our European friends when people need to stick together in, in, in unsafe times. I think that, that argument in the end will, will prevail. Well, if people aren't that concerned about the European Union, and I'm sure you're right, it's not people's most important concern, how important in the campaign uh, going forward would be the terms of the negotiation that Cameron is trying to, to extract now from his European partners? I think it'll have some, uh, some significance, uh, not least because, you know, assuming that the renegotiation concludes in a way that um, he, uh, he feels comfortable with, it means that he can, you know, finally... So get out of the Brussels negotiating room, uh, get out of the endless internal um, you know, twists and turns of the debate within the Conservative Party and actually get out and, and do what he should, frankly, be doing as Prime Minister, which is leading the country. At the moment, the moment David Cameron, in a sense, is condemned to being a mixture of a sort of slightly beleaguered uh, party leader and a, and, a, and a sort of glorified trade, trade negotiator. What I think people want him to do is actually go out and say what he really believes for the long term, the country. Long-term, uh, you know, safety and welfare of the of the country. So I think to that extent, it's an important catalyst for the wider debate. I actually don't think many people will be looking at the, you know, the the, the cross T's and the dotted I's. Uh, you know, this is, I think there are very very few people who actually will 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 follow the the, the twists and turns of the pack of renegotiation package. But they will make a sort of overall, almost impressionistic judgment on whether they think it's kind of push things, push the needle in the kind of direction they want to. I think it's very important, and I'm sure the government understands this, not to somehow claim the renegotiation is going to iron out every wrinkle in the European Union. Um, and of course, you know, it's slightly in the eye of the beholder. If I had a blank sheet and could renegotiate things, I'd probably start with, I don't know, the common agricultural policy okay. and the EU budget and sending MEPs ludicrously to Strasbourg every month. I mean, everybody would have their own list. And, and of course, David Cameron's list is not entirely, but, but, but very heavily influenced by his judgment about what works for his own party. Um, so I think, it, you know, for those people who are in, in that small circle in the Westminster Village and the Conservative Party, the commentariat and so on, people will follow the, the ins and outs. Most other people will just kind of think, does it, does it make me feel a little bit more comfortable about the European... And does it give David Cameron the, 
the kind of wind in his sails to actually go and sort of make the bigger case, which he's not doing at the moment. Those, that's the significance of the renegotiation process. Okay. Before we move on to one of your new roles, uh, one last question on this. Um, are there any upsides to having the, this referendum? I mean, obviously, it's a very risky enterprise, and a lot of people are nervous about the outcome, obviously. Um, will, it, will, are there any upsides in the sense that it will draw a line under this, under this debate, we'll move on and not talk about Europe again for, for quite some time, or will, will this thing keep on going on festering in the, in the UK political world forever? Look, let's be candid. The reason why we're having a referendum is... Well, why we're being asked to make up our minds is because the Conservative can't make up its own mind. So, I mean, and this, you know, this is exactly the same reason why Wilson did it. it Referenda generally in British politics, not always, but generally is when, is, is, and certainly in this instance, is when there's such prolonged uh, debate and argument within a political party, usually a governing, well, almost always a governing party, that the, uh, <laughs> the decision is, is, if you like, subcontracted to the rest of us. And that's exactly why, why we're having this referendum. I can't, I'm not a Conservative, I can't tell you whether I think it'll settle uh, the, uh, the debate within the Conservative Party. I suspect not, bluntly. I suspect the people who think we should leave will be a bit like, you know, those Japanese soldiers who were discovered in Pacific Islands 30 <laughs> years after the, the last war ended. They'll still carry on fighting it. The Scottish example suggests that referenda in and of themselves don't, you know, don't, don't quell disagreement. But I hope... But I hope it will, not least because, as I said earlier, actually for the majority of British people, it's not, a, it's not, the, top of their, not, not the top of their list of their priorities. It will, it will enable us as a country to actually move on and focus on the things that people really care about. I mean, the, the, and I say this as someone who's always passionately advocated internationalism in British politics and British membership of the European Union. The irony of all of this is that the Conservative Party, which has always had a, a ruthless uh, nose for both for power, but also for, for, for kind of public sentiment and following public sentiment. On this issue, they've always confused their own passions with the passions of the British people. Because Just because the Conservative Party obsesses 24 hours a day and has done for as long as I've been in politics about Europe, they kind of think everybody else does. They, can't, they don't. Thankfully, most normal people have, have, have more pleasant lives to get on with than talking about the European Union all the time. So I hope to that extent no other government will... will well, anytime soon, um, ask the British people once again to sort of, you know, once again to tie ourselves up in knots on this issue. Um, and, and to that extent, I hope it will allow governments to get on and, and govern on the things that people really care about. Okay, let's move on now on to, to, to drugs. I've done some homework. You're involved in an advisory group uh, under the UNGAS umbrella. I know now that you, UNGAS stands for United Nations General, <laughs> Assembly, General Assembly Special Session. Very good, the uh, acronym and, test. And you've joined this advisory group chaired by the former President of Mexico, Mr. Calderon. So what is this job and what does it entail? No, 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 Calderon, Cardozo. Oh, Cardozo, beg your pardon, yeah, Cardozo. Cardozo. So, so what, is, what, is, your, what so, is your role? What does yeah, it entail? So, so this, uh, look, I've always been... As you may know, and like most good liberals are, I've always, I've always felt that the whole war on drugs just self-evidently doesn't work. And, 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 and banging up in prison people who basically need treatment while allowing the Mr Biggs and the, all the criminal gangs to go free just seems to be a loopy way of, A, wasting money in the criminal justice system, uh, but also actually a very inefficient way of kind of dealing with a real health problem. So I've always felt, just intuitively, and I advocated this in government, to only very mixed uh, and limited success, given the resistance of the Conservatives. I've always advocated a more enlightened approach, where you basically treat the people who need treatment, and you arrest and charge and imprison the people who need to be in prison. We're doing it the wrong way around at the moment. And this group of people, this august group of people, chaired by <laughs> Fernando Cardoso, a wonderful former president of Brazil, but has other people on it, like uh, 
Richard Branson and Kofi Annan and Louise Arbour and Paul Volcker and George Schultz and other people. Uh, these are just folk from all political wings and all continents who, who believe the same thing. And this UN meeting in April, um, this impenetrable acronym UNGAS, is an opportunity to start, and I you know, only start because you can't do this just from one day to the next, to start revisiting the conventions, there are three international UN conventions which govern how uh, drugs are dealt with, and these conventions were written at the height of the war on drugs you know, under the Nixon administration, so they're right. based on a philosophy which I think is, and we all think, is, is past its sell-by date, a philosophy of prohibition rather than treatment, and, and, uh, and a sort of a philosophy that you can sort of eradicate drugs altogether, which of course you can't. I mean, uh, and so we are, we are quietly, um, this august group of, of, of uh, folk, uh, we are quietly speaking to governments around the world, and I've been speaking to prime ministers and foreign ministers and, and deputy prime ministers across Europe, just quietly, just nudging governments to try and take a more proactive role and position in this UN summit. And the thing I find frustrating is Europe used to be actually the kind of leading continent for reform on drugs. You know, you could, what they've done in the Czech Republic, mm. uh, in Portugal, in Switzerland. Actually, now we're being overtaken by experiments in a number of states across the United States, in Latin America and, and elsewhere. I, I'd like to see Europe once again, and European governments once again, take the lead in favour of reforming drugs policies. There, there have been other ungases in the past, mm. from my research, 1990, yes. 1998, I think. It's just to show I have done some mm. Why will ungas 2016 be different? Well, it might not. That's the point. It might not if we don't get our act together. And, and there are a number of countries, uh, China, Russia, Iran, who take a very regressive, very repressive uh, approach to uh, drugs rehabilitation. I mean, I'll give you a little example. Well, you know, shortly after Russia, in effect, annexed Crimea, they just closed down all the treatment facilities, and a number of people, a number of addicts have died in Crimea. Um, now, it's, uh, dare I say it, it's almost a, it, it's almost a footnote to the wider uh, humanitarian tragedy there, but it's just a small indication of quite how authoritarian and repressive a number of uh, other members of the United Nations system are. So they need to be persuaded that by the Colombians, the Mexicans, the Uruguayans, who are now experimenting in, you know, the full regulation of the sale of cannabis, uh, a number of states in the United States, and indeed by us in Europe, that there is a smarter way of protecting people from the scourge of drugs. Um, and so that's why I just, you know, that's why I'm trying. I mean, I wrote a piece in yesterday's, one of yesterday's Sunday newspapers here in, in London, uh, co-authored with the Prime Minister of the Czech Republic, just to try and get this rather obscure process <laughs> out of the bureaucratic undergrowth, because I think what is at stake is important. Okay. Again, one last quick, my last, my last question. Um, uh, in a paper I read uh, in preparation for this Barangas in April, uh, it says the following, quote, significant changes in the drug policy landscape are shaping up in the UNGAS 2016 preparations in the direction of more humane and proportionate responses based on health, human rights and development principles. Or could you kind of um, break that down for me and yeah. say what does that actually mean? Well, I'll tell you what that means. It, it, I, think it, I think it comes down to this. If someone is addicted to a drug, someone's hooked on a drug, they have a health problem. If you want to help them and also wean them off the habit that is giving profits to criminal gangs, treat them. Get, get, help them to kick their habit and use what resources you say rather than chucking them into prison to go after the criminals who are peddling this stuff in the first place. That's, that's it in a nutshell. We're, we're incarcerating the wrong people and allowing the bad, the, you know, the bad guys to walk free. That's what's so 
that's what's so crazy about the present okay. sort of tough talking war on drugs. It's not tough at all. It's very ineffective. Okay, well, look out for New York in April, and uh, I may come back to you after that. Good luck anyway. Thank, Thank you very you. much for your time. Thank you.